Hey, Global Chatter Tribe. Many of you know that part of my professional background is both in career development and education, which means I get a number of people, especially educators, asking how they can launch their careers abroad. If that's you, you need the International Educator, which connects English-speaking teachers with opportunities at international schools around the world. Not only do you find out about vacancies, but you get much needed information on topics as varied as free housing, tax-free salaries, and professional development. And here's the thing, all subjects and grade levels are needed at schools in Europe, the Middle East, Asia, Africa, and the Americas. So for a limited time only, Thai, as it's known for short, is offering discounts on memberships for Global Chatter listeners. So visit Thai Online, that's T-I-E Online, Com and use the promo code Global Chatter to save on your membership today. Early on, when I started the Black Expat, I reached out to a number of Black folks who were leaders in their respective cross-cultural spaces. I mean, really, folks who were doing inter and cross-cultural work as it related to global nomads. And Tamar Thorpe was one of those people. And the truth is, I'm not sure where I first heard her name, but we certainly had a number of associates in common. And honestly, it shouldn't be surprising that she and I would make a connection. There were so few visible black and brown individuals doing this work that intersected with international mobility, culture, and everything in between, that I suppose us meeting would be inevitable. And that was over five years ago. So naturally, she's someone who I thought needed to be on this podcast. Like all of my guests, Tamara's story is a colorful one. She's a Los Angeles native who now calls Albuquerque, New Mexico home. But at the start of this recording, she and her husband had just returned to New Mexico after their latest expat adventure living in Ireland. As you'll soon hear, Ireland joins a long list of past moves that includes Canada, France, Spain, and South Korea. What's absolutely wonderful about her story is that it starts with an unconventional opportunity that took her to Europe as an 11th grader for the summer. And this opportunity would be the start of a career and a life that clearly traverses the world. One that would allow her to use her skills that she built as an educator, program administrator, coach, and entrepreneur to help others. As the founder of The Millennial Mentor, she's a leadership coach, consultant, and DEI strategist. Tamara, as you might have figured out, has been doing the work at the intersection of intercultural understanding and diversity, equity, and inclusion, especially in the workplace, long before there was the vernacular for it. Many of the cross-cultural competencies that are now becoming a part of organizations has been a hallmark feature of Tamara's work for a very long time. So in this episode, we talk about that spark that began when she was 16 and the journey that has led to the career she has today. And as you listen, it will become evident that not only has she kept it burning, but clearly is enjoying every moment of it. Welcome to the Global Chatter. I probably start off saying that with every episode, it's I'm a broken record. I'm excited about the people who come on this thing, but I really am excited because 
this particular guest has been someone that I've been following at least five or six years, um, really even before, honestly, the Black Expat launched. And I just, I, I can't even remember either she gave a talk or she was an organization. I, it's so bad. Like when you, when you're like, I've been following people for so long, I don't even remember the point. Um, but I am excited about the conversation that we're going to have today because I know that she's a wealth of knowledge and she's had so many international experiences that are going to be really helpful to the folks that are listening in. So, oh my gosh, Tamara. Did I do it right? Hi. <laughs> I did do it right. Because like, my, my soul was about to say Tamira, and I know that was wrong. <laughs> How are you? I'm great. And I am equally excited to be here because I do remember uh, when we first connected, and it was several years back, and it was very much centered on this conversation around Black expats and being mm-hmm. Black and traveling and traveling <laughs> while Black. Um, and so I'm super excited to have this conversation with you today. Yeah. And it's, uh, I think what's even wild is that from the point that I think I even reached out to you initially years ago is to sort of see this explosion around diversity and in every spaces, right? Not just travel, but expatriation and, and, and DEI work that we're hearing to the forefront. And so I'm excited for your expertise and some of the things that you're doing, because I, I think that's going to be really helpful to the folks who are listening in. Um, but I always like to start off to, to, to tell the people, because it is global, right? Where in the world are you currently located? So I am currently located in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where Ooh. I reside. <laughs> yes. And this is where I, I reside on the traditional homelands of the Sandia Pueblo and the Navajo and Apache nations. Um, and so I like to, to thank these uh, communities for their stewardship of the land and their contributions, both past and present. Um, it is uh, such a, a vibrant part of my life and community uh, here in uh, Albuquerque. Uh, and so I, I am always um, excited by the culture and diversity uh, here in New Mexico and Whenever folks talk about traveling to the U.S., I can't encourage them enough uh, to come to New Mexico because I think it is a unique experience yeah. um, in the U.S. context. And so I am uh, grateful to, to, to be back in New Mexico uh, after being abroad for the last few years. Yeah, I mean, I think New Mexico is one of those places that where a lot of people don't necessarily think to go unless they. What, what was the show? Was it Breaking Bad? Is that where all the attention came it, from? It, it, it is. <laughs> and uh, but you are so right. I there's something powerful in that land, like, and, and it is such a gorgeous state. And I am saying this is someone who lives in the East Coast, so we don't see anything that looks like New Mexico, particularly, but the Southwest and particularly that state, I. Like it's, there's just a presence. I don't know how to describe it, but I'm always there. And I, whenever I go there, I'm like, I, I'm in New Mexico. Yep. And I like it. And I probably yeah. should, I probably should buy a house here and it, I still won't, but <laughs> like, I, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I always tell people, right. It's called the land of enchantment, uh, which I know that people who are born and raised in New Mexico have another term right. for it, but I, I, but I, I do believe that there is something truly enchanting mm-hmm. about the land uh, the geography, the history, and the people, and and, and the community uh, here that I I I'm always so grateful to to be a part of. It's a, uh, you know, 
it's always interesting that it's current calling card yeah. is Breaking Bad. Yeah. And yeah. some people go, right. oh, Breaking Bad. And I do. I think that that's also, right, that 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 element uh, is a part of the, the culture and, and the history of New Mexico. And when we look at the politics of New Mexico, uh, certainly that is a, a, re- a relevant narrative. Uh, but there's also, you know, a, such a another richness uh, that folks are less aware about. But I know that when people do come, they go, ah, oh, this is why you love New Mexico. Absolutely. Did now look. You alluded to this, but did you grow up in New Mexico? No, I was born and raised in Los Angeles, and and that was its own mm-hmm. unique and interesting uh, experience growing up um, because I grew up really close to the city center. So people go, where in Los Angeles? I'm like, no, I grew up in the actual city of yeah, Los Angeles, yeah. which was also uh, rich in its diversity and contributed a lot to my sense of identity uh, for sure. And um, after having lots of opportunity to live and travel abroad, we relocated here to Mex- to New Mexico originally in 2009. Um, and then we've been gone and we're now back again. But I, I, I also think that um, it was my experience growing up in LA and my first experience abroad. I'm not sure I know the year. It was in the 90s. I guess that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> uh, but that was really like the catalyst for, you know, the last 35 <laughs> years like, of my life. You're like, I had to do some math. So can I ask you, what was your what was your first international experience? So my first international experience was a high school trip to Spain. Okay. So I went to a really teeny private school in Los Angeles, uh, a real sort of, I don't even know how you describe it. Like when most people think of LA, this school probably sort of encapsulates, right? Like we called our teachers by their first names. Like it was a real sort of adventure and like progressive California education and uh, and it was a place that I thrived after being in a very sort of traditional suburban academic environment. And then I kind of moved into this very sort of where students had a lot of freedom mm-hmm. and there was a lot of trust and we were, you know, held accountable for our own education, which I really thrived in that environment. And uh, the founder of our school, a wonderful woman named Bonnie Bishop, who I still call a mentor today, Mm. her and her husband had discovered, you know, uh, the beauty of life abroad, and Mm -hmm. they had bought a home in Spain. Mm. And so they ended up designing this international program where every summer they would take students to Spain for the summer. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And so (laughs) when I got to the school, and I made friends, people were like, you definitely want to do this Mm -hmm. summer program in Spain. And, uh, you know, the things they shared, I was like, yeah, I think I definitely (laughs) want to do this. And let me like full caveat, it wasn't just Spain. They had a house in Soyer, Mallorca, which is one of the Blairic Islands. So it was like an island in the Mediterranean, (laughs) just so context. And they were letting high schoolers? Wow. Yeah. And this was like pre- Right. Like Ibiza being like the biggest party place. Like back then it was still like, oh, we knew people went there. But I mean, I went to a 
I think two years ago, my husband and I went back to Mallorca and it was the first time that I had been there since 80 something. Yeah. And it was almost unrecognizable. Right. Right. Like it literally was like a teeny little village where no one lived and there were no tourists. Yeah. So, um, but it was, it was, it was that experience aside from like all the bits of it that were like amazing as a teenager to like go and be in Europe and have freedom. I fell in love with culture and language. I was so intrigued by how different people lived. I was so intrigued by um, not only the fact that they spoke Spanish, but they they spoke uh, Catalan, and there was this whole history uh, uh, behind that, and and that really started to really spark in me this desire to be like, I, I want to speak a lot of languages, and I want to go to a lot of places, and that discovery really became a motivating factor for me, so that Bonnie you know, as we were on this trip, so much of that experience for her to create this experience for her students was to expose them Mm -hmm. to new things, new people. Um, And I remember, you know, I share this story all the time, but when we were there in Spain and I I remember saying to her, like, I want to have this experience Mm -hmm. for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I did, I said to her, what can I do for a living so that I can continue to have this type of experience for the rest of my life. And she was like, well, you know, you could teach English as a foreign language and then you can travel. And I was like, okay, cool, done. Like literally that day I was 16 years old and I was like, okay, for my job, I'm going to teach English and I'm going (laughs) to spend my whole life traveling around the world and learning languages and meeting people and done. And so it's, and like, that's what my life has been. Like, I literally have done that with my life. <laughs> so very, I think not very rarely, but often we say things as kids and teenagers, but we don't necessarily kind of follow through and do that. And it's it's fascinating to me that, and maybe, and maybe it wasn't necessarily even just speaking English, but the fact that you knew that in some capacity you were going to help people and in some capacity it was going to be international. And so clearly that this experience was a catalyst. So I'm curious then as you got older, because obviously you went on to college and I think at some point you studied in France, correct? I did. I did. Um, So it was an interesting trajectory because because that was right. I I was 16. So was that summer I turned 16? Mm -hmm. So it was the summer between 11th and 12th grade. Right. So I applied to university and I got to my university And I met with the counselor and I was like, hey, I want to, you know, travel and teach English. And so I was trying to figure. So when I had this meeting with the counselor and I said, "Okay, so my plan is I want to be able to teach English and I want to travel. So I ended up doing my degree in linguistics Mm -hmm. and uh, with a specialization to teach English as a foreign language. Mm -hmm. And then after university, I got my certificate which at the time, I think now the requirements are different. But mm-hmm. at the time, I ended up going, getting the, I think it's the Cambridge mm-hmm. Certificate to Teach English as a Foreign Language, whatever it was. And uh, and yeah, so that was the plan. But I, I think, actually, if I tried to do this chronologically, I studied in France before I started for your university. So actually, the funny thing is that 
So, well, that was the vision for my life. My mom's vision for my life was that I would speak French Mm. and travel and live in France. Like that was kind of my mom had fallen in love with learning French Mm -hmm. in school and never really learned French or traveled to France. And so she had that vision for me. And I remember her goal for me was to do that. So right after high school, I actually did like I think I did like a semester or two of community college. And then I did a study abroad program in France before I even started my four year degree. And that was, again, one of those like reaffirming experiences of like, and it was more difficult, right? Like it was a much more difficult experience than my first experience, right? I was gone longer. I was going to school. Yeah. You know, I had a an attachment back home to a boy and, you know, <laughs> yeah. stupid stuff like that. But it really reaffirmed that I, I love learning languages. I love exploring, mm-hmm. like, the norms of another culture. I love the challenge of figuring that out. I love the pressure of, of having to adapt and adjust. Mm-hmm. And so like I said, that reaffirming experience. So I did, I was like, okay, let's do that four year degree. Let's get that teaching certificate. Let's go. Let's do this. You know, and I also think it's really key in your story because at this point you're obviously a young person and you're a young woman, but like the fact that your mother was very supportive, right? So first of all, the fact that she affirmed and allowed you to spend a summer, you know, to send, to send their teenager to go for a summer (laughs) to another country. That's a really big thing, especially, you know, with what I do and talk at the black expat, I have talked to so many families and everybody's family is different, but the idea, especially students of color, it's sort of like, Oh my God, I'm sending my kid off to wherever. But then even then being supportive of the fact that you were pursuing French before you even did the four-year degree, because I think that so often we would think, you know, what's the, the order of things people would say, go to college. And then, it, and, and even when I, you know, I, I had Corey Sanders on here, who's, who um, is part of diversity and doing study abroad at NC state. And we were talking about this and just even the conversation she has to have with parents about sending their college kids. So the fact that your mother was like, look, you can even go, beforehand and 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 because she recognized the value and the person and, and the importance of that I don't think can be really understated I like that's something that I always want parents to hear that you can actually understate some of the things that if you're willing to let the student go out that they can really embrace and so yeah so I guess then kind of following up with that obviously then so up to this point you've lived in Spain and France so as an adult <laughs> how did you then take what you studied in undergrad and, and, and the certifications and how did you weave a career out of that? So, yeah, that was the interesting piece, right? Because so one, you're hundred percent, right. Uh, my mom did not hesitate either times. And actually when I went to Spain, typically Bonnie only took students for two weeks. Mm-hmm. And my mom was like, I'm not paying all that money for her to be gone for two weeks. No, you keep her in Spain with you the whole summer. Thank you. Bye. We don't we don't need her here. She can she can be gone you, for six wait, weeks and you, we'll be just fine. Are you an only child or do you have siblings? I have an older brother. Okay. I was trying to figure out because sometimes you know, if it's like the youngest 
<laughs> no, no, no. It, it was my mom. I, 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 one of the things that I'm continually grateful for was that she was very good at providing us with experiences. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and just the other day, somebody was complimenting me to my mom and saying, Oh, well, tomorrow is so adventurous. And my mom in her, you know, humility was like, well, of course she is because we made sure that our children were adventurous. Nice. Like we created opportunities <laughs> and experiences awesome. for them to be people who went out and did adventurous things in life. Is your mom from LA? So, Where's your mom from? So <laughs> she grew. Yeah. So yeah, she kind of grew up Pittsburgh okay, and, and LA. Okay. So, so she I feel like that Pittsburgh, that Pittsburgh part, but I'm like, that's what I'm like. <laughs> okay. That's fair. Yeah. So, so yeah, I was, I was always really grateful for that. And also like you, I, I volunteer with another organization where we create international experiences for children starting at age 11. Mm-hmm. And we talk to parents, you know, mm-hmm. send your children to this international camp and hear all the reasons why it's great. But we know, right, that the, the benefits to second language learning and to traveling not only increases your your uh, capacity for for uh, knowledge and learning. Right. But we know that, right. We know that kids who speak more than one language are smarter. Yeah. Right. And they do better. Yeah. We know that. Um, and you know, I did my master's research on the impact of, of international travel on young people, because I know that it has a significant impact because it did on my, my own development. So, but I did, I did, I started my career teaching English Mm. and, uh, I, when I finished school, I did two things. I applied for the Peace Corps mm-hmm. and then I applied for a ton of international teaching positions. And I always like to brag because I had to do it back in the old school. Right. There, there was no internet. <laughs> there were right. no emails. Right. <laughs> so like I ordered catalogs, right. right? And I wrote away for like application booklets. You're, you're, right? What you were describing is me applying to college, right? For the people who are listening, man, you yeah. have no idea. Yeah. yeah. So like, you know, we, 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 I, we, I put in the research, the effort, the yeah. work you had to kind of do all that stuff back then. And not that doing it virtually today uh, isn't work, but it certainly is a different, different level of labor. Right. And so I did, I got a job offer and accepted to the Peace Corps at the same time. And so I I made the decision, right? Do I take this job and pay off my student loans (laughs) (laughs) or do I go to the Peace Corps and, you know, get to do something really interesting and great and improve my French? And I chose to pay my student loans Mm -hmm. and I took a job in Seoul, South Korea. Hmm. And uh, yeah, yeah. Couldn't have told you where on the map it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't even necessarily sure that Korean, like I literally, I, I remember in school that I, there was a boy in my class whose parents were originally from South Korea. And, and like, that was the extent, like I remembered Charlie, I remembered his parents and that was like literally all I knew. And so that was for many reasons, probably I don't know. All my experiences are so significant, but that was career shaping. That was career shaping and life shaping for for a lot of reasons. One, you know, when you teach in Asia, I don't know if it's different now, but in teaching in whether you're teaching in Japan or South Korea or Thailand, you are teaching 
for a lot of hours a day. Yeah. Right. Like the demand, particularly at that time, was so high uh, that you spent hours teaching. And when you weren't teaching in your formal job, you had private students, private jobs. And so it was like for me, like teaching boot camp. I learned how to teach in a really intensive uh, environment. And so for that, I was really grateful. I made great money. I had some really cool experiences with the people I met and traveling throughout the country, learning the language, you know, that because that was my first time traveling where I not only didn't speak the language, but I was illiterate. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Because in France, restaurant, toilet, right. Like those are kind of the same. Right. Uh, in Korea, you, I went to the bathroom. There were doors with Chinese characters on it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, my goodness. And that was that was really powerful and another level of, of learning. But also I, I had a violent experience there that I was uh, assaulted and mm-hmm. mugged uh, by three men. Mm. And which is probably everybody's worst fear, yeah. but it was a really interesting life experience to have internationally. Yeah. Uh, because certainly I think that most women in the world, you know, we know statistically are likely to be assaulted in their lifetime. Yeah. And so for me, I know that it didn't happen because I, was in Korea, it could have happened to me anywhere. Yeah. And, and reconciling that, because of course, you know, when it happened, my mom and my friends were like, you got to go home. Yeah. You got to come home right away. Yeah. And I knew that if I went home and I didn't process the experience there, that I would have forever attributed that experience. Right. Like being assaulted would have been because I was in Korea and my experience in Korea would have all been about being assaulted. Right. Yeah. Uh, And and so I, I, I felt like, and I did, I disappointed my mom and friends and family. So I got to resolve this here because this could have happened to me. I grew up in LA and I didn't grow up in LA, like, you know, Beverly Hills. Like I grew up, (laughs) I grew up in a, in a, a, a very, an environment where that could have absolutely happened to me a hundred times over. It just hadn't happened. Right. Yeah. And I was able to, you know, I went to the embassy and they were like, go home. Don't stay here. Yeah. This is, isn't a safe place for women. And I was like, there are a lot of places that aren't safe for women, but I did. It was able to find the resources that I needed, you know, to get support, to process, to work through it. And I was really grateful for the support that I was able to find and, and having friends who are very supportive and learning to advocate for myself in a foreign country, because, you know, just like here, the police didn't care. The company I worked for didn't care. And I really had to advocate for myself in, in ways, you know, that lots of women do. So that was such a a powerful uh, moment for me because I knew I didn't want it to be something that kept me from living the life that I wanted, which was a life living abroad. Uh, And it made me smarter. I changed how I traveled after that. I changed how I behaved and what I did and didn't take certain things for granted anymore. Do I wish it didn't happen? Sure. Am I grateful for the lessons that it has taught me? Absolutely. And 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 in part, it was because of that when I came home that I, I took a break from traveling. I had spent quite a bit of time abroad in those years and started to really shape and form my career beyond teaching into 
a, a career that was outside the classroom and more culture focused and moving into um, program management and facilitating and coordinating international exchanges and move from sort of uh, teaching English exclusively to then coordinating English and cultural exchange programs and being in, in that space. And I was in that space for, for a very long time that I really enjoyed, right? Because one, I still got to travel, right? <laughs> right. I still got to travel. I still got to, uh, to uh, work with people around the world, but I got to kind of have a home base, right? And then that was sort of, you know, how I have operated for a very long time where I've got to have a home base, but also travel and then build and have a very large international network of friends and colleagues that I've really enjoyed. But I then have also had opportunities to live and work abroad for extended periods of time. And I think now I I calculated that I have spent over 10 years of my adult life living abroad. And I think that is a perfect segue after we, we're going to go for a quick break, but I want to talk about now the work you're doing and how you weave all those experiences and plus the new ones you've picked up post, obviously post career, because there are other places you've lived since then and how that impacts your work as a coach and as a consultant, especially as you develop leaders for the next generation. So we get asked the most random questions here at the Black Expat. Everything from who ships hair care products internationally to where can I find a solid expat tax professional? This is why we're soon launching a new resource called Buy While Abroad. It's a business directory to connect expats and travelers with the companies that deliver the products and services they need while they are abroad. So if you're a business owner and your business can cater to global nomads, especially a diverse clientele, you should visit buywhileabroad.com and share your email address. We will keep you posted when we go live and definitely tell you how you can join. All right, so we come back. I think you you already um, alluded to this and in two ways. One, you've had a very portable career because you've been on the move for a very long time. I guess we can say since you were about 15, 16, really at this point. And, and, and really talking about you know, kind of cross-cultural um, context and, and identity. And I, I know that as a leadership, because I, I, when I think about you, I think about leadership development. I mean, there are other things that you do, but leadership is the first thing that I think about. So let's talk about your actual career. So have you been able to sort of take your love for, for all things international, your love for kind of understanding cross-cultural spaces. Obviously, DEI is part of that. So for those who don't know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, sometimes belonging is added. Sometimes justice is added as well to it. So it could be Jedi, it could be DEI, it could be whatever, depending. Um, how have you been able to really form a career that takes all these different pieces of you that you find interesting and just take it around the world? Uh, so I think, Part of it is being open to the opportunities that come in front of me. And that's something when I talk with folks all the time, um, very often we'll let opportunities pass by because we're not sure how they fit. And I'm like, take it and see what happens because it might fit <laughs> and you don't know. And I know it's one of those words, but but being able to, to pivot and not get too bogged down in like 
my job, right? Like I put a lot of energy into being a English teacher. Yeah. And then when there was an opportunity to move from out of the classroom into managing programs, a lot of my peers were like, no, no, I just teach. Yeah. And I was like, mm, well, I don't really know how to manage this program, yeah. but I'm a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, I'll give it a try because nobody else wants to do it. Right. right? And so, um, and this was when I was teaching, I was teaching English at San Diego state mm-hmm. and I took on managing programs and within three years, I had been promoted to a full-time position where 50% of my role was managing these programs wow. that previously, you know, I ended up creating an entirely new position that never existed, that somebody still fulfills to this day. It's still a permanent role at the university there. Yeah. And, and so, um, and that allowed me to move into another organization where my full-time job was just managing international programs. and so. But really, the big pivot came that um, after, um, you know, I had the opportunity to live and work in Canada for six years, and that came through my husband's job. And when we were living and working there, I went back to school. And that's when I did my master's in leadership and training. And my work was really working around, you know, the impact of international travel on youth leadership development, because I believe that, right, that the younger you do this, the greater the impact it's going to have on the trajectory of your life. And I kind of knew that happened for me. And I thought, I wonder if this happens for other folks. And so that's why my research uh, focused on that and found very similar results uh, for myself. And so Um, But when we came back, right, when I finished school there, I ended up kind of freelancing as a consultant and really starting my freelance consulting business while we were living in Canada. And then when we returned to the U.S. and moved here to Albuquerque, I had this business where all my clients were in Canada. Mm. And I was like, whoops. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I need a better business model. And so this really was around between and, and it was after the recession in 2008. And, and I wanted to find a way in which I could ensure that no matter where we lived in the world, my business would be fine. Mm-hmm. And that's when I set a path, which now is funny, but back in 2011, wanting my business to be primarily virtual mm-hmm. and online, yeah. it was a huge, it was a huge leap. Like yeah. the world just joined me. Right. No, you are, <laughs> look, you are absolutely right. Right. So if you were not thinking virtual as hardcore as some of us were thinking pre-COVID, it's now like, it, it it's like on 100, right? Now, all of a sudden you see so many right. people looking and so many companies like big fortune 500 companies saying, yeah, at this point, we're going to keep everyone mostly remote. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I was super committed to, to working remotely, working virtually, having my business be portable um, because I didn't want to get on planes all the time for travel that was work related, right? Like getting on an airplane to travel, to do one day of training in a city somewhere to fly back home the next day. Like it's not glamorous. That's not glamorous travel. And so I really wanted to find a way that how, how can I, can I do this? And so that I could be location independent and have clients nationally and globally and have 
be able to do the work I do without people needing me to be in the room. And that really began then. And then bridging all those pieces and wanting my brand to be associated with all things that I'm passionate about, which is leadership, young people, culture, and learning and growth, right? Like those were the key driving factors. Like I want to help people learn, grow, be great leaders, transform organizations, do that across cultures, and, and then be able to do it no matter where I am in the world, right? That was so, that was the vision. So I think, because I feel like you just really answered a question for me, because I was wondering really what had been the catalyst for the Millennial Mentor, which is your brand. And now I realized it's actually your own story. Like, because here, here's the thing. I always tell folks, and we now know millennials, the oldest of millennials are now 41. But 18 to 30 always exist, right? Whether they're Gen X, boomers, traditionalists, Gen Z, yeah. and whoever's after them. And millennials. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And millennials will always need to grow in their leadership. Right. Right. Because I did. When I built my brand as the millennials mentor, I had plenty of business strategists say, well, one, you, you can't build a brand on mentorship. Interesting. You can't. <laughs> and then, well, what are you going to do when millennials get old? And I said, I'm going to grow up with millennials. I'm always going to be older than them, right. and they're always going to need me. Right. That's fair. Because <laughs> you will always be Gen right? X. <laughs> All right? I will always be Gen X, and They'll they will always, always be millennial. <laughs> that is fair. Right? And there is no final stage in your leadership development or your cultural competence. Those are two skill sets that you will have to continually grow and develop uh, no matter how old you are. Mm. So that I can say that I'm somebody who's an expert in leadership and cultural competence, but I am continually growing in those areas as I have new experiences and opportunities. Um, and so I, you know, I need to continuously learn and grow in those areas. And uh, I know everybody else does. And so uh, for me, I was very confident in that original vision. And, and while people said, mm-hmm. you know, that's it's not practical, I was very clear on what my 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 business mission was, because in the work that I have done as the millennials mentor, my work has not focused on going into organizations and explaining millennials yeah. to another generation. That's not my job. Right. There's plenty of websites folks can read and Google. My job has been going into organizations and saying, in order for you to ensure success as a multi-generational or multicultural organization, y'all need to develop your cultural competence. So let me ask this. So you, and this seems like it's going off the reservation, but I'm, I'm really not. So you've made this business, you've made it portable, you've got a very specific vision, you're looking at cultural competence. This started in Canada, you come back to the States. At some point, you moved to Ireland, correct? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. How does your business and the work that you do adapt or change as you've now carried it out of you know, I, because I, I assume you'd never lived in the UK before. And well, I, Ireland, Ireland, not Northern Ireland, right? Ireland. Yeah. Okay. Correct. How did your work change or adapt once you then moved to Europe? Did, did, were there any ways that you saw that what you were doing, you had to sort of tweak 
because you were in a new environment or how you were delivering it? Or was it that you were able to keep it consistent and you're doing the same work? Like, I'm, I'm just kind of curious if there were changes because you met, and this is why I asked this question, because from Canada to the States, you realized your clients were <laughs> mostly in Canada. You obviously had to pivot in terms of when you got to the States. Did you have to pivot again in some way when you moved to Ireland? So on one hand, I want to say no. And on the other hand, I'll say yes. <laughs> so, so I know that may not sound helpful. So in terms of my business model and the business I delivered and how I delivered it, no, right? My clients were used to paying for me to travel to deliver my service. Mm -hmm. And my clients were used to doing services virtually. Mm -hmm. So I continued to coach virtually. I continued to travel, to speak, to do trainings, right? And, and that's part of the challenge. If your business is too local centric and you don't have clients that are, are um, used to part of your fees, including travel, right. then that, that was a business model I was trying to move away from and move into because I knew mm -hmm. that we would likely live abroad again. Okay. Right. And so I was very intentional of, I need clients that know that part of my fees include you paying for me to get there. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, on that front, so my U.S. business did not change. Okay. Right. Now, when I had to then say, well, since I'm here in Europe and I want to do more work in Europe because I'm here, that was a slight pivot. Mm -hmm. And that was a slight pivot because one, my network wasn't local. I had a network across Europe, but I didn't have a strong base in Dublin, Ireland, where I was. So I had to think more holistically about what's my network in Europe and how do I leverage it? And then try to feel out what's the local Dublin network and how do I get into what's happening in Dublin so for my work to matter. So on that hand, uh, the pivot as I started to kind of learn more was I had to do more in the cross-cultural space and diversity space than the leadership space, mm. right? Mm -hmm. So that I was then able to brand a part of my, my leadership programs to have a greater cultural, culture and diversity focus for a European audience, right? So here, here's then my follow-up. So I'm fascinating. So woman of color, you've, you've, you've made a slight pivot, right? You're getting into the DEI space and I'm, this is DEI before people also have to understand massive explosion post George Floyd, right? Yeah. You're yeah. nodding your head. No one can see this, but I <laughs> understand. <laughs> I understand. Right. But this is was mm -hmm. well before that. Right. So <laughs> before a lot of hats mm -hmm. were in the ring. Right. What did that work look like? Like, you know, how, how, what does that conversation look like when you're working with a European organization or just a non North American? Did it look different? Did the conversations look different? Like how did you approach having a cross-cultural conversation? So this is interesting because, you know, the, the diversity, equity, and inclusion space includes a lot of folks, yep. right? Yep. Whether it's in the U.S. or internationally. And there are different ways in which this topic can be approached, right? And, and in the U.S. context, 
you know, we're, you're either coming at it from a social justice lens or through a business lens, <laughs> right? And for myself and uh, several of my colleagues, um, there are people uh, like Natasha Arulaya and Kelly McLeod Sheenan yeah. and Dr. Joel Brown yeah. um, and my team that I work with at uh, Language and mm-hmm. Culture Worldwide that we have seen for years that there is a clear intersection between approaches to diversity and inclusion and intercultural competence. Mm -hmm. And that both as separate fields of study kind of fall short, right? So that in the intercultural field, there is not even a potential for a social justice lens historically. Now, more so than ever, people in the intercultural field are starting to look at social inequity and social disparities and racialized communities. And that is very, very new within the intercultural space. Very, very new. And in the diversity, equity, inclusion world, there for years, this work has fallen on deaf ears because people in the business world mm-hmm. have not wanted equity and justice didn't matter in business, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Particularly in the U.S. context. So that a lot of the messaging of diversity and inclusion over the years has fallen on deaf ears because people don't care because success is measured by the bottom line. Right. And it what hasn't been actually until millennials have increased social accountability within organizations. And then we also know that it's until the murder of George Floyd that companies realize Social accountability has to be how we measure our success. And this is a new realization. So for those of us for years who have had one foot in the diversity and inclusion space and the other in the intercultural space, we have found that there are models and approaches and tools in the conversation around cultural competence that can be very effective in having conversations with folks about diversity and inclusion, right? Because you take away the morality, you take away the white guilt and the white shame, right? And you say to people, this is about understanding difference, right? right? And and we can look at differences in a very simplistic way, which is about national borders and national, you know, identities. Or we can look at it in all the ways in which we experience difference. And we can look at and explore what culture looks like for every culture group. So whether that's U.S. Black culture, LGBTQ plus culture, whether that is millennial culture, that all of these communities form a culture and cultural competence is key. And that was something that I had been doing specifically in the multi-generational space. Mm. And so for me, I have always been in the business of educating folks on cultural competence. And that's how I educate folks around DE&I issues. And in the European space, it is slightly different um, because one, cultural communities, the cultural communities are different. Mm-hmm. Communities that are racialized and marginalized are, are, are different than what people might traditionally associate with skin color prejudice. Yeah. Um, And because most folks' understanding of what race and racism are are so narrow that um, it can be real easy for folks in other parts of the world to say racism is a U.S. problem. Yes. Right? Yeah. But we know that racism is a global pandemic. Yeah. (laughs) 
and not just for people with black skin color. Um, and, and, and so, so a way in which it was different was, is expanding that conversation and pushing the boundaries. I think one of the things that um, raised my profile in the European context was I'm quite overtly challenging Europeans' concept of what race and racism are. Um, And and, and I think it ended up serving me. Um, (laughs) I think it still does, but it certainly was risky. So here's here's where I'm thinking. In, In context of everything that you've said, you got someone listening in who's thinking about, I'm going to be an expat. I'm potentially looking at working for a multinational company abroad or, or even a local company. What, in your opinion, are some of the pitfalls that folks should really avoid? Or what are the things they even need to consider as an individual, right? So we, we talked about the organization, right. but as an individual, right? especially if I've never lived abroad or if I've had limited interactions, because as you and I know, traveling somewhere (laughs) is very different from living there. Right. So what are some of the things you feel just from kind of your intercultural background that, that folks have to be aware of or, or have kind of their spidey senses just to, to, to kind of pick up and know. So I will say first that for, uh, People from the BIPOC or LGBTQ plus community, right? That there can very often be this sort of idea that if I'm in another country, it may be better, easier. And and I will tell you, I know a lot of Black expats who will say, for sure, it has been easier. But I don't think people should go anticipating or expecting that's the case. Because as I said, racism discrimination and oppression and bigotry and prejudice, those are global and they're going to happen to you anywhere. And so I think one of the things that's really important is that people have realistic expectations for what their experience is going to be like, which means uh, that one, you may experience racism, bigotry and prejudice in another part of the world, or you may not. Uh, You may experience (laughs) violence (laughs) or you may not. Uh, any challenges, interpersonal challenges that you have with relationships, you may experience there or you may not. So I think for people that it's one to have really realistic expectations about what the experience could or could not be. You go with high hopes, but recognize that, that, that those may not be fulfilled. I also like to share with folks that And then that goes for the same for the job, right? Because people sometimes think, oh, this job's going to be great, right? I got hired by Facebook in Dublin. This is going to be amazing. And then they get to Facebook in Dublin and all the same crappy things about working in an office are still crappy there. Now you just have to do it with colleagues and coworkers from other parts of the world whose communication style is different, whose approach to work is different, whose conflict resolution skills are different. And so I think it's important that people not only, one, learn the culture and history of where you're going and do that in a deep and powerful way and never assume that a culture isn't that different because as a person who has spent a long uh you know, quite a few years living in Canada, which people think is just the same as us, and it's not, 
or in Ireland where people think, oh, well, they speak English. How hard could it be that it is the cultures, the the unwritten rules, the values, you know, they are distinctly different. And without a clear understanding of the history and culture and how it shapes and informs people's behavior uh, could leave you ending up. You know, I had friends who didn't have any cultural training, didn't do any research, and they were miserable because they're like, everybody here acts in ways that are confusing or difficult for me to navigate. And so I think that that is so key for people to never take for granted that where you're going, that you're going <laughs> to understand that, you know, below the surface culture. Um, and so I think that that's a really important part is to know it, study it, and and then to then look at what are some very specific things that people who study abroad experience. And uh, one of the things that frustrates me, I suppose, is that as people, we have a very lay understanding of the term culture shock, mm-hmm. right? So we'll hear people talking, they're like, oh, I went on vacation to Mexico and the toilets were a certain way. And it was such a shock. Like, that's not culture shock, right? Like, culture shock is a real psychological phenomenon that comes from the exposure to not knowing what the heck is going on, right? And so it is so important that people research what culture shock really is and identify strategies. And if your company does not provide any cultural training, then you've got to provide your own cultural training because culture shock um, doesn't go away. So I lived in Canada for six years. I lived in Ireland for four years. It doesn't go away. It just comes and goes and shows up differently. So there were times when I was you know, doing fine. And it could take the smallest trigger to be like, oh my God, I'm disoriented. I don't know what's going on. I'm homesick. I hate this place, right? Like you have this range of emotions. And I think people highly underestimate its impact. And I have done so much coaching in my career for students and professionals living and working abroad. And I spend a tremendous amount of time talking about This is what culture shock is. This is how it shows up. This is how you can identify when you're experiencing culture shock. And now let's create a plan for what you will do when you're having this range of emotions, which can go from depression to anxiety to physical symptoms and missing those cues. And so they're unable to really properly care and manage their culture shock. And I've seen so many people quit jobs, leave countries, go to another place in country because they think somehow it's going to be better, uh, but then just duplicate the same experience in a different place. I think that what you have just said, even, even though we were talking about it in the context of career, is really the stuff that people need to do before they even contemplate moving somewhere. And I, I hope that, especially for those who are listening in and are thinking about their first move, that that part, if it's like if you heard nothing else she said today, <laughs> that's the part you need to grasp because those are the questions that you need to ask yourself. And those are the things that I think that, that people need to make sure that if they're going to have a good move, good move, however good it's going to be, that you really do sort of that work ahead of time. Um, as we wrap up, there, here's the deal. You First of all, I feel like you're all over the <laughs> social media and we will have the links up. 
but where is the where I always tell folks where's the one spot we can find you that will be the gateway to everywhere else Oh, that's an interesting question. So I think the the best place to find and connect with me is on LinkedIn. It's one of my favorite places. And of course, at tomorrowthorpe.com. Uh, but if you send me a LinkedIn connection, I will respond yep. and connect and start a conversation. <laughs> she does. I can vouch for that. Okay. So we'll make sure I'll, I'll put in the notes and I'll put on our website. We will have, we will have her website, but we will also have LinkedIn. And I think there's some Facebook activity going on. And I, I think we could throw Twitter, 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 Twitter for, for good measure. And I was actually, I think I followed your Instagram today. So there's, there's Instagram that going as well, ma'am. I am so happy that you dropped by just to at least give some like, I, I, I'm going to say shotgun <laughs> bite-sized advice because it's been um, it, it's been really helpful. And I, I really appreciate that you've come and shared your story. So thank you so much for joining in. Thank you for having me. An absolute pleasure. Well, as always, you can find us at theblackexpat.com. And if you, I think, hit forward slash, you'll get to the, to the podcast. You can also check us out at theglobalchatter.com and find us on social media. Thank you till next time. You just heard an episode of the Global Chatter podcast, a project by the Black Expat. It's hosted by me, Amanda Bates, and it's edited by Stephanie Fuccio. To learn more about this podcast or to learn more about the Black Expat, visit theblackexpat.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.